So great to see all of you this morning. If you want to turn with me, we'll be back in Genesis, slowly but surely making our way through this book. I think this is year four or five now. Slowly. Genesis 31, I want to share with you a message today called Leaving Laban. That's what we're going to do today in the book of Genesis. That's what we're going to see. It's been a while, so let's, uh, let's do a real quick review of what we saw in chapter 30, and then we'll get into our exegesis of chapter 31. Chapter 31 is a monster of a chapter, 55 verses, long chapter. Everybody gets a little bit nervous when the preacher says that, don't they? So we'll have to be quick about some of it. <clears throat> so, remember chapter 30, Jacob is now married to the two daughters of Laban. The youngest is Rachel, whom he loves. And then there's Leah, who he doesn't seem to be too fond of. He served seven years for Rachel and was then tricked into serving seven more on behalf of Leah. And you're going to see the daughters say something about that today. They're going to say, our dad sold us. And they're not wrong. Remember, Jacob is faithfully serving his time for his wives. And as he's doing so, children are being born to him. We see the rivalry as well between Rachel and Leah, between the two sisters, the sister wives. Leah begins the chapter by bearing four sons to Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then she stops having children for a while. During that same time... Rachel sees that she's not getting pregnant, and so she gets very jealous of her sister Leah. She decides she needs to fight back against the fertility of her sister. She's going to push back against it. She doesn't want to be overshadowed. And so she decides to give her maid, Bilhah, to Jacob as a wife. So Bilhah can have children on Rachel's behalf. So in other words, our childbearing is now a team activity. Right? In her mind, desperate times call for desperate measures. So Jacob takes Bilhah as a wife. She immediately becomes pregnant with a son, Dan. And right after that, she becomes pregnant again with another son, Naphtali. So back-to-back pregnancies. Bilhah is now producing sons for Jacob like clockwork. And now it's Leah's turn to get jealous. She realizes she's not producing any children at this point, but Rachel's maid is. And so she's, she's getting a little nervous, right? She doesn't want to be eclipsed as the top air-producing matriarch in this system. And so she decides to fight fire with fire. If Rachel's going to play dirty by giving her maid to Jacob as wife, then I will too. So Leah takes a page out of Rachel's playbook. She gives her maid Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. That makes four wives now for the patriarch. And just like Bilhah, Zilpah gives Jacob two sons in back-to-back pregnancies, Gad and Asher. For those keeping track at home, that makes six kids for Team Leah and two for Team Rachel. And then that brought up the Mandrake fiasco. Remember we talked about the Mandrakes? The Mandrakes were seen as the ultimate aphrodisiac in that culture. This was a plant that uh, supposedly could make a woman highly fertile, help her get pregnant, and so it was a very sought-out and prized little plant. And Leah's firstborn son, Reuben, one day is out in the field. He couldn't have been very old. He had to be less than 13, probably a long way less, probably more like 8 or 10. But he's out in the field, and he just so happens to see these things, and so he digs them. He knows they're prized. Probably his mom has told him about it. Hey, you ever see a plant like this? Bring it back to me. And so he digs it up, and like the good son that he is, brings it back to mom. That's Leah. Now, Rachel, remember, has still not had any children of her own. Rachel wants to get pregnant, desperately wants a baby. 
which is not a, a bad desire. Okay, let's put that on the table as well. But she's never been able to get pregnant up to that point. So in her mind, these mandrakes, that could do it. That's the avenue to finally having a baby for her. If only she could get some of her hands on some of those mandrakes, but it's her sister that has them. She just knows that would finally solve her. But that will that'll let me get pregnant finally. That will solve my problem. I'm certain of it. i got to do something to get my hands on some of these drugs. I mean this mandrake plant. Right? And so she cuts a deal. The deal was Leah will give Rachel some of the mandrakes. And in exchange, Rachel would let Leah have Jacob for the night. Don't tell me the Bible is irrelevant to a modern day and culture. Here we have a desperate woman pimping out her husband for drugs. I mean, that could have come off the front page of the Ada newspaper today. Rachel agrees to pimp out Jacob to Leah in exchange for some mandrakes. Leah thinks this sounds like a fine exchange. Seriously, this could have been, like their address could have been like West 4th Street or Sandy Creek Drive. You know what I'm talking about? Like this could be in the paper today. Nonetheless, Leah agrees to Rachel's deal. So Jacob spends the night with Leah, and lo and behold, Leah becomes pregnant with Issachar as a result. And meanwhile, do the mandrakes help Rachel? No, not at all. They do nothing for her. By the way, we've done, I, I told you this last time when I talked about this. We've, we've done a lot of research on mandrakes because it was, it was written about in texts all the way through the Middle Ages. There's all kinds of texts that talk about how this, this little plant will let you get pregnant. We have done all kinds of research on it and absolutely no, it will not. But there was a thinking at the time that God had made plants to kind of resemble the body part that they might help. So the thinking, for example, was walnuts and morel mushrooms. That's good for the brain. How do you know? Well, it's shaped like a brain. And if you dig up the mandrake root, it's kind of, it's doubly branched. It kind of looks like a little person. And so the thinking was, it looks like a little person. It must be able to help you make little people. Obviously, I mean, you know, the science is bulletproof here, right? But it doesn't work. After giving birth to Issachar, it's Leah's turn for back-to-back pregnancies. She gives birth to another son whom she names Zebulun. And then, then after Zebulun's born, she gets pregnant again. And this will be her last time being pregnant. It'll be the only daughter Jacob ever has. Her name is Dinah. For those of you trying to tally all that up, here's how it shakes out so far. Leah the unloved has given Jacob seven, six sons and a daughter, seven kids. Zilpah, that's Leah's maid has born Jacob two more sons. So team Leah, if you will, has nine kids total they've produced for Jacob. Whereas Rachel's maid Bilhah has born two sons and Rachel was still barren up to that point. So at this point, Jacob now has a large family of his own. He's, he's working for Laban. He's not getting anything in exchange except basically his room and board. He is now a man that has four wives and 12 children. At some point... He's going to have to figure out a way to provide for these people. Because at this point, basically, room and board is all they're getting. I mean, you want to talk about an employer taking advantage of their employee. Pretty good when you've got a guy that's literally making you wealthy. He's making you rich, and he's working for nothing more than food. Anyway, it might seem ironic But he doesn't have any earthly possessions. 
Laban has become quite wealthy on behalf of Jacob's tireless and faithful efforts. And yet Jacob has nothing to show for it. So he decides it's time to head back home. But Laban doesn't want him to leave. Good. Yeah, obviously. Right. Hey, we don't want you to leave the company. You're making us a lot of money. Look, let's renegotiate your salary. And so they do. And so Laban says, listen, you stay here and we'll, we'll negotiate a salary for you. I'll tell you what we'll do. Any of them that are streaked or spotted or speckled or whatever, we're gonna, that's going to be your wages, right? Sounds great. So Laban, being the trickster, the deceiver, the manipulator he is, goes out into his flock immediately, takes all of those kinds of goats, separates them out away from the flock, drives them a couple days away, and has his sons watch over them. Yeah, now try it, pal. So now all Jacob has to start with is an entire flock made of solid colored animals and he's being told his wages will be the striped and speckled and spotted that comes out of that flock (laughs) what a dude man what a dude if you've never worked for a guy like laban i just want you to know if you ever have that fantastic experience you will not forget it and that's exactly what's going on with jacob and yet Even through all of that, the Lord's watching over it. The Lord gives Jacob wisdom, and the Lord intervenes on his behalf. And Jacob takes these this flock of solid-colored animals down to the watering hole. Remember, that's where the other the other herders, you know, animals are at. And while he's there, the other herders, you know, rams or their his their bucks will be jumping on and breeding with his. And so God is actually watching out for Jacob. He's the X factor that Laban couldn't quite get everything figured out with. So we'll close out the review with this reflection. The Lord sees all that we do, whether good or bad. He also sees all that everyone else does, whether good or bad. In fact, there's a word for that. God is the God who sees. It's called El Roy. The Hebrew term for the God who sees. He sees it all. He sees exactly how you treated them. He sees exactly how you've been treated. And he is a just God. And he will bring it back on you. He'll recompense it all. He is a just God. And he is going to do that in this chapter. And that brings us to chapter 31. So let's pray. And we'll get into this. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. I ask you to use me as a mouthpiece today to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Let the preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through this today for the building up of your people, for the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you, Lord, and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. Monster of a chapter, 55 verses total. A lot of of stuff. But the good news is it's a very straightforward narrative. There's really not a lot of explaining that has to be done because it's very straightforward. In contrast, you go back to chapter 12 and the first three verses took me an entire sermon and about a half to explain this is not that way. Very straightforward. Let's get to it. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons. 
saying, Jacob's taken away everything that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he's acquired all this wealth. It's interesting that they're mad at him and not their dad for striking the deal. It's interesting that they think it's his fault when they've been watching over the flock the whole time too. The dude ain't cheating you. You're watching over the flock. What's your excuse? Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. But in point of fact, I would like to point out, it was not Jacob who had taken anything that belonged to Laban. In fact, we're going to learn later, Laban has been cheating him and changing his wages ten different times. And every time that he does it, God is one step ahead of Laban. And Laban is very jealous, and he's very bitter over it. But in the the reality, this is not Jacob's doing, this is God's. God has seen how Laban has acted. God has seen how Laban has treated Jacob so wrongly. How he's used his position of power. To be so contemptuous, so manipulative, so deceptive. And God has decided it's time for you to eat the fruit of what you've been doling out. Bit ironic. The truth is the problem was not Jacob. The problem was the envy in the hearts of Laban's sons and Laban. Envy is a monster, okay? By the way, you'll notice it did make the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, right? What's the Ten Commandments? What's the tenth one? Covetousness. And not envy. You'll not covet. Why? Because envy will distort the truth in your mind. It will lie to you. It will tell you, you know what? You're entitled to these things that you're not entitled to. Your imagination will play tricks on you, Ronnie Likes to say it this way, there's no nation so big as the imagination. It's true. You begin to despise the other person for no good reason. You're angry at them and they've done you no wrong. It's a wicked thing. It's not just bad on its own, by the way. It's also bad for the company it keeps. Where you find envy, you will find other stuff too. 1 Corinthians 3.3 tells us for... For you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? This is part of the flesh. This is not God's character. This is part of the flesh nature. James 3.16 says, Where there's envy and strife, or envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there. Envy was the motivating desire for the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. It's why they gave him over for crucifixion. Matthew 27, 18 tells us Christ knew that the Jewish religious leaders had handed him over because of their envy. And the envy creeping into their hearts, the hearts of these men, will end up ruining the relationship that they have. This relationship with Jacob and with, remember, their sisters, Jacob's family, will end up being ruined because of the envy. And by the way, Christian, envy in your heart will do the same. It will cause strife and it will ruin even the most beautiful and godly of friendships and relationships. Envy is a destructive force, a subtle and destructive force. So do you have some envy that needs to be dealt with? And I suggest you take it to the cross before it ruins you. 
Envy doesn't ruin the person you're envious of. It ruins you. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now that's a command that's going to necessitate a lot of faith on his part, isn't it? What's waiting for him back there in Canaan? Uh, He's got a brother who is a manly man and who is well able to kill him, who has promised to do just that. Uh, God, the strongest, most powerful person in the entire land has promised he's going to kill me. You want me to go back to that land? Yep. I'm going to be with you. His newsflash, Esau's not the biggest, strongest, most powerful person in that land. I am. But it's still going to necessitate a lot of faith on Jacob's part. Esau is intent on killing him. He doesn't know what Esau's life. It's been 20 years. He doesn't know. He's, his brother may be more mad at him today than he was 20 years ago. Or he might be fine. And there's, he hasn't had email or letters back and forth to know. Not a phone he can pick up and call. He does not know how his brother is going to react, and it's been 20 years. Notice, by the way, that there's a pattern here that God is using to move Jacob. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because God will often use this same pattern today. Here's the pattern. Number one, God gives Jacob a a desire to return to this home. Number two, God lets the present circumstances become unbearable to kind of get him moving that way. Number three, God gives Jacob direction for the next place to go. The next step of faith. God can use that very same pattern to move you. He's used that to move me before. God can still lead his people by this same general pattern. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field. To his flock. So obviously he's he's saying, listen, let's have a meeting where all the other ears are not going to be there. He brings them out to the field and he says to them, I see your father's countenance. It's not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and he's changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said the speckled will be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said the streaked will be your wages, all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and he's given them to me. It's not really true in one sense. He didn't take away any. Laban still has a lot of livestock. It's just that Laban's livestock, the, the herd, is not growing in the same pace as Jacob's. (laughs) And so Laban and Laban's sons see it as, well, he's ripping us off. Dude, you're the one that made the terms of the contract. So even though Laban has continually tried to cheat Jacob, God has protected him all the while. God showed Jacob that he was sovereign and he was able to overcome what any man might try to do to Jacob. Christian, it hasn't changed. Man, I'm in a place where, you know, this guy's taking advantage of me. This employer's taking advantage of me. My, you know, my brother, my sister, my family member, my uncle, my aunt, my. God sees. 
He's El Roy. There is nothing you're pulling off that he does not see. I've been praying about it. I don't even know if he hears me. Yes. Yes, he hears you. And he's working. You might not realize that, but he's working. He's working on your behalf. God's presence was still with Jacob just as God has promised him back in chapter 28. God is always with his people. He will never leave them nor forsake them. He sees everything anyone does to them. He has promised to keep his people as the apple of his eye. And now I'm going to have to talk about dispensationalism because so many of you have been taught a lie that, oh, who God really sees, who he really watches out for, are people who live halfway around the globe in this little piece of land that used to be called Canaan, and they can trace their genetic descent from Abraham. That's really God's people. No, it's not. You are the true Israel of God. That's what God's word says. The only people who count as children of Abraham, says Galatians, are those who believe in Christ. You are the apple of God's eye. You are the one that he has promised. I will bless those who bless them. I will curse those who curse them. You are the true Israel of God. And now I'm going to have to get into that. David said this in Psalm 118.6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He knows unless God says so, that guy can't touch me. David understands the sovereignty of God. Verse 10, And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived. I lifted my eyes and I saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. In other words, God did just like he said he would do. And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams that leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Why? For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You're the apple of my eye. I have promised to watch over you and protect you. And I have promised those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. That is God's promise to his people then, and it has not changed. That is God's promise to his people today. If you are in Christ, you are part of the true Israel of God. Christ is the only true Israel of God. You cannot be the Israel of God and be out of Christ. You have one of two federal headships. Either you are under the headship of Adam and you are out of Christ and you are not part of the true Israel of God... Or you are in Christ, and you are therefore part of the true Israel of God. If you are descended genetically from Abraham, I mean, fantastic. But if you don't have faith in Christ, that does you no good. There's not like this third, like, hey, there's, there's heaven, there's hell, and then there's this other place for people who are descended from, genetically from Abraham, but they don't have faith in Jesus. That's crazy. And it's also crazy to think, and I've literally heard this spoken. It is crazy to, I heard a a supposedly Christian who who just doesn't understand what he's teaching. Supposedly Christian teachers say, well, God deals with the children of Israel. And by what he meant by that was those who are genetically descended from Abraham. He deals with them differently. He deals with them according to the law. But us Christians, he deals with us according to Christ and grace. That's That's 
literal heresy. There's a, Acts says there is no other way to be saved other than Jesus Christ. I promise you this. That law can condemn you. And it will condemn every man who's ever been born on earth. It cannot save you. There is no one who's going to be saved because they kept the law. Oh, I was a good person. You're going to hell. Unless you are found in Christ, you have no escape. There is no way to cover sin. Many of us have been taught this. It's just simply not true. The promises made to the people who are in Christ, those are the promises of God. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They're not yes and amen because I'm Abraham's genetic lineage. And Paul goes on to say in Galatians, if you don't have faith in Christ, you are not Abraham's seed. I don't know how to get around that. Galatians 3.7 tells us only those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. 3.9 goes on to tell us only those who have faith in Christ are blessed along with believing Abraham. But here's the good part. If you do have faith in Christ, you are in fact blessed along with believing Abraham. And you are an inheritor of that very promise. He will bless those who bless you. And he will curse those who curse you. That's you, Christian. An envious and spiteful world would do well to take note of that, by the way. Christ has promised to return to them their treatment of his people. He will return it on their own head. There is a reason I will go out of my way. When I have people who work for me or do jobs for me, especially when they're Christians, and almost always are Christians, if I can hire someone that's a Christian, I would much rather my money go to them. I will go out of my way to make sure I'm doing right by them. You know why? I'm not intimidated by them, but I am by their God. Do I fear that? No. Do I fear their God? Yes, I do. I know God is watching out for them in every bit as much as he's watching out for me. Do you think I'm foolish enough that I'm going to try to cut corners and cheat them? Do you think God won't see it if I do? He's going to square it all up. Those who bless his people, his bride, he promises to bless in return. And those who curse and mock and ridicule and manipulate and deceive, he'll square that up too. God has revealed to Jacob in a dream that it wasn't Jacob's cleverness that caused his prosperity and his success. That's another point that has to be made here. It's not because you're so smart, Jacob. It's not because you figured out a way to game the system. It's because I was here watching over you. I saw how he mistreated you, and I am going to make it right. There's nothing else to the blessing of Jacob except God's provision. God's watching God is the reason that Jacob is prosperous. And so he goes on to say in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. Remember Bethel? Where Jacob had made this, basically this exchange with God. He says, look, if you'll watch out for me. Remember, Jacob had nothing when he was at Bethel. And that's exactly what God was telling him. When he's at Bethel, he has nothing. And he says, God, if you'll watch out for me, you'll be my God and I'll be yours. Bring me back to this land in peace. Watch over me. That's all he's got. And, ooh, this, man, it's like, trips me up. 
God is telling him, I'm the one that's been here watching over you. I'm the one that's kept you safe. Remember when you were asking about that, me bringing you back in safety? Here I am. You've been in a place where you don't know anybody, you don't have any political connections, you don't have any money, you don't have any influence. You're the one that's the most vulnerable of all people here. You're the one that can be taken advantage of. You're the one that can be stepped on. You're the one that can be marginalized. And I'm not allowing that to happen because I am God. I'm the one watching over you. It's not your political connections. It's not your money. It's not your powerful friends. It's me. I am the God of Bethel, 13, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get up, go out of this land and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. They're not lying. He sold off his daughters to get some good farm help. He sold us. 16. For all these riches which God has taken away from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. That is some trust. Hey, whatever God said to you, do it. I'm following. Twice in the last two weeks, I've had young men who are in serious relationships come to me and talk to me because they're like, you know, I'm I'm thinking about proposing to this girl, but we've been having this talk, yada, yada, yada. One of them, both of them actually was the same issue. I said, well, what's the issue? Well, I, I really feel like it would be best for us to go to this church. Then go to that church. I don't know, man. She just she doesn't want to follow me in that. And I said, you think she's going to follow you the rest of your life and she won't even go three miles away for, to a different church? A church that's a, a solid place, by the way. That what you think? One of them tells me, well, she told me like she's ready to be married. I said, look, let me tell you something. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Let's talk about this verse, this three verses that is absolutely not talked about much today. You ain't woke if you talk about this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Pretty carte blanche. For the husband is the head of the wife. Not the husband should be. Or in the proper time, he should be the head of the wife. He is. He is the head of the wife. And he will be judged and held accountable accordingly. And so will you. He is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. How much authority does Christ have over the church? Twenty four goes on. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I pulled that out and I said, listen, I know you don't want to talk about this and you don't want to think about this. You can tell me you're a young woman who's ready to be married, but if you are not ready to at least attempt following that verse, you are not ready. That's a big deal. You know why that's a big deal? It takes a lot of faith. You have to have faith that God is actually working in this man that's standing in front of you, the man whom you know his weaknesses. You know his limitations. Listen, there's no one here that knows my limitations, my weaknesses better than my wife. 
If my wife can have faith that God will work through even me, trust me, then she has faith that he can work through anybody. Mean that. (laughs) Y'all that actually know me are chuckling. You know why you're chuckling? Because you know it's true. (laughs) Told you this before. I'm the guy that get a flat tire and leave the keys in the vehicle and it's running all day. The only reason I have more than $2 to my name right now is Jesus is merciful to people like me. Okay? We had this early on. I probably shouldn't be telling this story, but I will. We had this early on. My wife and I were, I don't even know if we were married yet. I think we just sat down. We were, we were engaged. And she had two really good friends that were always, you know, taking her everywhere with them. And I told her, I said, look, those friends of yours are not born again. And I don't like them, and I don't like their influence on you. And I'm telling you right now, we're not going to get married, and you're going to go have girls' night out with those, those girls. No. No way, no how. Like, that's a deal-breaker. for It really was a deal-breaker for me. And she's like, I get it. She's like, I've thought the same thing, and I know that. That takes a lot of faith. I can see they're probably not really good influences, and if I have to follow you and leave them behind, then that's what I'll do. That takes a lot of faith. And that's exactly what these women are showing right there. For all their warts, for all their wrinkles, for all their strife, for all their fighting and bickering, they're being faithful to say, okay, whatever God says to you, all right, let's do it. That's faith. By the way, the support of Jacob by his wives cannot be overstated. This is a big move. You got four wives, 12 kids at the time. It will end up being 13. And you're going to move more than 300 miles back home. Without a car, without a pickup, without a moving van, that's a big deal. The other thing he'll say later is he's scared that Laban is going to try to take these girls away from him by force. Which is to say, if one of them would have said, I'm not going, what can you do about it? So he's basically saying, do you trust me? And they're saying, do what you think God's telling you to do. We're following you. That's a lot of faith. You married ladies in here who know what that's like, you know how much faith that is. It's a lot of faith. It's a lot of faith to hear, wait, you're doing this, and I don't think this is a good idea, but I'm going to trust that God's going to work through it anyway, and I'm going with you. The Ruth thing, you know? Lead on. It's also the first time in quite a while when these sisters are actually agreeing on anything. Remember, they were typically striving against each other. And yet here, they seem to be united as, uh, against what they think of as a common enemy, which is their dad. Now, that's a heartbreaking situation. But at the same time, you know, they, they probably didn't think too much of it while they were growing up because it was helping them. Dad is manipulating and deceiving and, you know, he's being a real shyster to these other people. But, hey, we're getting, we're getting wealthy out of it. No big deal. Well, all of a sudden, when you're on the other side of the coin, it is a big deal. How strange. 17, Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on the camels, which means he was pretty wealthy by this point. You didn't have camels in that day and age if you didn't have wealth. Okay? It's the Humvee of the day, if you will. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he'd gained in 
uh, Padanaram to go with his father to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Now, Jacob doesn't know about this. Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him what he, that he intended to flee. And so Jacob fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. Mountains of Gilead were about 300 miles from there. <coughs> but remember, God had already promised Jacob safe passage. So you could make the argument, well, why are you doing this? God's already told you he's going to bring you back in safety. You don't have to sneak away. But Jacob's afraid, and I think rightfully so. I think most of us would have been too. He doesn't have any wealth or influence or not, not compared to Laban. Laban knows everybody around there, right? Jacob is kind of a foreigner in this land. He's not part of the good old boy network. Laban has other sons. Jacob knows if these guys decide to, you know, circle the wagons, it's me against all of them. Who else in Jacob's camp? His, his, remember, his children at max, his oldest son was 13. He's the only fighting-aged male, and he's past fighting age. And Laban has other sons. Second salient point in the passage is Rachel pilfering her dad's idols. The Hebrew word teraphim is actually what is used there. She stole her father's household idols without letting Jacob know what she had done. The question, of course, is why? Why would she do that? Maybe they were made of precious metals. Maybe they were silver or gold, and she's just greedy. That's possible. I'm going to tell you this. I don't know exactly why. I'm going to tell you some of the ones that some different commentators throw out there. Maybe they were made of gold and silver, and she's, she knows they would be, you know, I can sell these later. Maybe. That's possible. She might have thought that her dad used them for divination. He uses these to figure out what's going on. He uses these for divination, and if I steal them, he won't be able to do that. Maybe. Maybe it was because those kind of idols were sometimes used as like deeds to a property. So maybe in her mind, if I've got these, I have the deeds to the inheritance. That's possible. I don't know. Maybe she stole it out of spite. She's going to get back at her dad who's been mistreating her husband all these years and mistreating her. That's possible. The Jewish historians, a lot of them will say she stole them because she was... She had this magnanimous effort. She knew her dad was an idolater. She steals the idols thinking, now dad won't have his idols and maybe he'll worship the true God. I want that to be true. <laughs> I do. I really do. <laughs> I'm not sure I can put 100% stock in that. But whatever the case, the, the text goes on to say, verse 22, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob has fled. So he took his brethren with him, and he pursued him for seven days' journey and overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. The mountains of Gilead, again, were 300 miles away. They've been going now for 10 days. They've been making roughly 30 miles a day. They're hoofing it. I mean, you're, you've got all these animals. You're driving your animals and these little children. 30 miles a day, man, you're not letting the moss grow on anything. They're hoofing it. They're almost home. Mountains of Gilead's right there on the cusp of Canaan. I mean, they are almost there, and they get overtaken just before they basically escape. Laban overtook Jacob, verse 25. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead as well. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? 
Look at this, that you've stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword. Oh, doesn't he think of him? Isn't he such a white knight? Oh, he's the rescuer, all right. The guy that's been manipulating and taking advantage of these people for 20 years. Oh, you care about your daughters. The ones you sold to me? I've taken away like a captive to the sword, have I? The same daughters that told me, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, I took them like a captive. Oh, Laban. You know, you see this kind of heart's posture in, in the unregenerate. The unsaved always think, they're, they're really, I'm a really a good guy. No, you're not. You're only a good guy in your mind. It's a figment of your imagination. Laban's the same thing. Laban is a scoundrel who is trying to appear to be noble and mighty. Yes. I'm here to save my daughters. You've taken them away like a captive with a sword. No, you're not. You're here because you're greedy and you're about to lose your best worker and some of the sheep. That's why you're here. Couldn't care less about your daughter. You sold them both. Laban had a bit of a flair for the dramatic. Daughters being carried off like captives of war. Incredible. Envy has warped his mind. Greed has warped his mind. And greed and envy will warp your mind too. Why did you flee away secretly, he says, verse 27, and steal away from me? Not tell me. I might have sent you away with joy and songs and timbrel and harp. Baloney. You didn't allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. You've done foolishly in so doing. And it's in my power to do you harm. Okay, here's his real heart coming out. I can hurt you for this, boy. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good or bad. In other words, you lay a hand on him, I'll lay a hand on you. I'd hurt you, except that God talked to me. Probably a good idea for you to chill out then, huh? About to stroke out on this mountainside and I'm about to know why. Wind of the Holy Spirit. It's in my power to do you harm, but the God of your fathers spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good or bad. This is so ironic because he knows the God of Jacob and Jacob's fathers is the God. He just had an encounter with him. And here in three or four verses, he can be like, where's my idols at? Why'd you take them? Look, man, if your gods can be stolen, they ain't gods. Uh, you know, trying to be nice, I would say this, but. And now, here's verse, 20, uh, verse 30. Now you've surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob doesn't know they've been stolen. Right? And now Jacob's mad. And rightfully so. Jacob is the one who's been the upright one for 20 years. And now Laban is trying to impugn his character. Excuse me, sir. You can see Jacob just getting hot, right? Because I was afraid, I said, perhaps you'll take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, don't let them live. In the presence of our brothers, everybody here is watching. Identify what I have of yours and take it with you. If I've stolen something, take it back. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols. 
And she put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban searched all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord, but I can't rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. I'm on my monthly cycle, please don't, don't make me get up. So he searched around, but did not find the household idols. 36. Jacob was angry and he rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you've so hotly pursued me? Although you've searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before everyone that they can judge between us. Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they might judge between us both. Let's see who's really in the wrong here. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I've not eaten of the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself, and you required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day. The drought consumed me. The frost by night. My sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I've been in your house 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. You want to know why I'm leaving Laban? It doesn't take a genius to figure this out. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely even now you would have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands And rebuked you last night. God sees it. You're not getting away with it. You just think you are. But just wait, baby. Time's coming. It's all coming out, isn't it? Verse 39, that which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. In that culture, it was a custom that a shepherd could bring the torn carcass of a sheep to his owner as evidence He was brave enough not to let the wolf devour it or take it away. Here's the thing. A shepherd that was dishonest would kill one of the sheep to have lots of food and then tell the guy, hey, it was torn by beasts. And so then the the pushback to that was, oh, it was torn by beasts? Where's the carcass? Because if you're really a real shepherd, you'd have drove them off, bring me the, the carcass intact. Show me all the bite marks that you didn't steal anything. And Jacob is saying, I knew you're such a shyster, even if I brought you this dead animal, you still would have required it of me. So I just took the lump for 20 years. The ancient custom, if the shepherd did that, they were excused from the loss of the sheep. Because it was out there on the periphery, they couldn't do anything about it. And they obviously didn't steal it. Jacob here explains he could have followed that rule, but he went above and beyond what was required. Every animal that was attacked, every animal that was stolen, everything that was lost, he he replaced at his own expense. He also explains that Laban's own rules toward Jacob were harsh and fraudulent, and yet Jacob put up with them for 20 years. It's finally come out. The time for God to recompense it, to return it to him, has finally come. You changed my wages ten times. Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock, and all you see is mine. 
You think envy has warped his mind a little bit? What can I do this day to these, my daughters, or to their children whom they've born? (laughs) He wants to look like he's generous. All this is mine, Jacob, but out of the kindness of my heart, I guess I'm going to let you have it. You were the one that made the deal. 44, now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took the stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Hagar Sahadotha. I don't know how you say all that. Jacob called it Galead. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galead. Also, Mizpah. Because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me while we are absent one from another. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives besides them, although no man is with us, see, God will be a witness between you and me. This is, this is interesting to me because when I was a kid, somebody had gave me this sticker. Uh, I put it in my pickup and it was like, may God watch out for us while we're apart one from another. It sounded like this really sweet thing, right? That is not what this is. It's exactly the opposite. Okay? This, this covenant is not springing from mutual love and concern. It's springing from mutual distrust and hatred. The idea of Mizpah, Hebrew, that's the Hebrew word for watch, to watch over, is if you do wrong, God will see it and he'll punish you. It is not God's going to preserve us both so we can come together and see each other at family luncheons at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Okay? Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who's a uh, theologian, a commentary writer, doesn't mince words when he describes it. He says this, quote, in effect, the pillar of Mizpah really meant if you come over on my side of this line, our pact is void and I'll kill you. The covenant breaker would need God to watch over him because the other one is going to look for revenge. That's what the covenant meant. You don't come past this line and neither will I. Right? It's like Hadrian's Wall, if you're, a, like a, if you're a history person. right? The Romans go to war against the Scots and the Celts, and at the end of the day, they're like, oh, my goodness gracious, we keep fighting, no one's winning, here's what we'll do, just make a wall. It was not a huge wall, by the way. You could literally crawl over it, no problem. You could, today, you can go visit it, you can literally step over it, parts of it. Why is it there? It's just a marker. Dude, just you stay over there, I'll stay over here. We're tired of killing people over this thing. None of us can win. Just, okay. That's what this is. 51, then Laban said to Jacob, here's this heap and here's this pillar which I've placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness. I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. There's not fuzzy feelings going on here. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of Isaac, his father. 54, then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. <coughs> and early in the morning, Laban arose. He called his, uh, sorry, kissed his sons and daughters and he blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. 
Sometimes there's a little wisdom in having a little separation from the family. This would be a pretty extreme case, wouldn't it? Here's the point that I want to bring out because this whole chapter has one big point. And the big point is this. God sees. He sees it all. You're not pulling one over on him. And nobody else is pulling one over on him when they're treating you one way or another. Those who bless you, he will bless. And those who curse you are cursed. And it's not because you have innate goodness. It's not because, oh, they're treating me wrong and I'm such an upright and upstanding and morally perfect being. No, it's not. You're not. But you are a forgiven being who is part of God's special people. You're not part of God's special people because you're such a good dude. You're not part of God's special people because of. You're part of God's special people in spite of. I am not a Christian because I'm so magnanimous and so good. I'm a Christian in spite of my insufficiencies because God has chosen to love me. He's chosen to give me a new heart. He's chosen to look over and watch out for me even though I do not deserve it. had a conversation with my wife this week that really reminded me of this. She was just telling me, you know, I really appreciate what you do for us and yada, yada, yada. And I told her, I said, uh, I am thankful that you choose every day to get up every day and love me. There's not been a day I've deserved it. And I mean that. There hasn't been. There's never been a day or a moment that you deserved Christ to love you. You're not innately good. But he is. He has chosen to love you. And that means he's chosen to look out for you. He's chosen to watch over you. And he is not sitting on the sideline with his hands tied. Gosh, I wonder what I'm going to do about this, this treatment that they're enduring. No, he knows. He's working it out. He's working it out to your good. And he's working it out to his glory. And if no one else is, I'm certainly glad for that. He is El Roy, the God who sees. Let's pray. Lord, give us the grace to forgive those who have treated us wrongly and hurt us. We know you're the one that sees it all, that knows all, and that you will deal with it all justly. We don't have to take revenge for ourselves. We can just leave it in your hands. We can be kind and loving toward those who persecute us. We can pray for those who spitefully use us. We can give them the gospel and pray that you'll change their hearts. Lord, on the other side, please give us the grace to confess and repent of our own sin when we're the ones who are wronging others. Give us a willingness to make it right with those that we've hurt because of our own selfishness. Give us a heart. Give us grace. Let us look to Christ and find in him the grace to forsake our sin. Let us look to Christ and find in him the grace to live in a manner consistent with our Christian testimony. Thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's special and holy people said, Amen. You would stand as we sing.